Thanks, Tim. One of our elders. Good morning. A little quiet. A bunch of the families, this is uh, one of the kids' weeks off from school, so it's always a quiet time. Uh, which reminds me, um, normally in this service, we have, uh, we have Sunday school for the children. We have some of them starting to come back. If you have ever taught or thought about teaching, uh, we would love to have you help us in Sunday school. We need your help. And uh, for those of you that are listening online, if you feel safe coming back and you'd like to teach Sunday school, again, we could use your help. So think about that and pray about that and um, let us know. Okay, so we're in Lent, uh, the second Sunday of Lent, and we are looking at the seven last words of Jesus. So we're doing a series called uh, Joining Jesus Outside the Camp that comes from Hebrews 13. So remember, we finished Leviticus through 13 and 14, where the defiled or the sick or diseased person has to go outside the camp. So Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus went outside the camp to atone for our sins, and therefore we should go out and join him and bear the disgrace that he bore. So that's talking about um, we should stand our ground, we should look different than the world. So to in order to make sense of joining Jesus outside the camp, I proposed that we do a field trip. That's how I'm picturing Lent during this time. We're going and standing at the base of the cross, the foot of the cross, and we're listening to Jesus' seven words, his last things that he said. So you may remember Ash Wednesday, we talked about, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So remember, the crucifixion occurred, in, in the, they always put the crosses in the most common, commonly traveled places where there were people, because it was a spectacle. And they wanted to set the example, they wanted to create a deterrent, if you will, so here Christ is hanging on the cross. There's probably a lot of people watching, and um, they're mocking him. The soldiers are mocking him. The leaders are mocking him. They're all mocking him. And right then and there, he said, um, Father, forgive them, these people. And one of the criminals, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now remember how brutal crucifixion is. It's a shaming, a shaming execution. They're stripped naked. Now they weren't wearing loincloths. They're stripped naked. It's a, it's, it fits the modern definition of sexual assault. We've talked about that. He's hanging there for everyone to see, and they're mocking him. He's having trouble probably breathing. He'd have to stand up, push up against the nail. Um, so crucifixion was a form of asphyxiation. And right then and there, would you be thinking about forgiving the people that put you on the cross? I wouldn't. And yet that's what he did. Forgive these people. And so we talked about life. Forgiveness brings life. And he modeled that. He modeled what it means in our deepest distress to forgive the people that have harmed us and hurt us. And then last Sunday we looked at, today you will be with me in paradise. To the one criminal who said, who, uh, who said remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's thinking of the future. But Jesus said, today. In fact, in just a few short hours, we will be together in paradise. Hope. When you put all the seven sayings of Jesus together on the cross, you know what you have? You have a summary of Christian theology. Everyone is significant. Some repeat, uh, some quote from the Old Testament. 
Some refer back to something he taught earlier. We're going to see that today. But they all are significant, all of his statements. And so when we're standing at the foot of the cross, listening, we're only there for just a few short hours. He wasn't on the cross for long. We're going to take it over several weeks. But the actuality is we're there, there for a few short hours listening to these statements as he's slowly giving up his life. His life is being poured out now. And as it gets weaker and weaker, he makes these statements, and all seven of them are very important. They're very important. So today, you, read, you heard uh, John 19 read, uh, where he looks down at his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. Uh, a very, again, a very important statement. So to get into this, let me kind of give you the background of the two characters, Jesus, his mother, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus, his mother, only occurs twice in John. Uh, the first one is at the wedding of Cana, and the second one is here on the cross. So in John chapter 2 is the first place where she occurs. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, pause. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be the mother of the Messiah? The mother of God himself? At what point did she worship him? At what point did he become her savior, her Lord? It probably wasn't when he was just a little baby. Probably wasn't when he was a toddler running around causing trouble. Probably wasn't any of those times. At what point did the roles get reversed? I think it's right here in this passage. I think that's what happened. Because she said to him, they have no more wine. Why would she tell him that? You see, it was a cultural faux pas to run out of wine. And she knows that he's the only one that can fix it. Because the angel said to her, told her who was coming, the Messiah. She knew all along who he was. And so she is, for the first time now that we have on record, deferring to him as somebody who can solve the problem. And look at his response. Woman, why do you involve me? What's that between you and me? He doesn't call her mother anymore. He calls her woman. This is not meant to be a disparaging term. It's actually a term of respect, but it is a reversal of the roles. He's now the Messiah. And this is the first miracle that he did in which he revealed his glory, John tells us. Up until now, it's this, and now it's this. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So in this passage, the hour is future, but in the passage in John 19 on the cross, the hour is present. He's living out the hour. The hour in world history where everything changed, everything. Where the covenant was fulfilled, the new covenant is coming about, sin is atoned for, everything that we know happens in this one hour. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. In the first scene, his mother is asking him for assistance. In the last scene, in John 19, the final scene before his death, he's now taking care of his mother. 
Well, why woman? She is the first person in John to express faith. It's interesting. Because the very next verse, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You can have confidence. Do whatever he tells you. She's the first person in the Gospel of John to express faith. It's his mother. She did have a little bit of inside knowledge, granted. But still, she's still a mother. And she's watching this role change. Okay, the beloved disciple. Let's say a word about him. Um, Both of these people, by the way, were very special to Jesus. Um, Both were very faithful in their love for him. The beloved disciple disciples presented all through the Gospel of John as um, the model disciple. In fact, in John 13, um, when he's at the beginning of the Last Supper that night before he's betrayed, the beloved disciple is lean is pictured as leaning back on his breast, asking him a question. So he's presented all the way through here as a model disciple. I personally believe the beloved disciple is John himself who wrote this. It's very common among the gospel writers to submerge their identity and to highlight something different. So the mother of Jesus is never named. She's submerged. And John, uh, the disciple, is submerged. He's, he's not named that way either. They're presented in a different way to communicate something. Exalt Jesus and submerge their own identities, if you will. So both were instrumental in, in revealing Jesus to the church. Jesus' mother bore him and presented him to the world. John wrote the Gospel of John and presented his deity to the world. He introduces himself, he introduces Jesus to us as the one, more than the Messiah, God himself, who became flesh and dwelt among us. So they both play very vital roles. But also they're both now going through perhaps their darkest hour in life. I don't know what it would be like for a mother to watch a son be excommunicated, I mean, to be communic- uh, uh, executed. I don't know what that would be like to watch him hanging on the cross, the pain and the suffering. And so I don't know what it would be like for John to watch the Messiah die. Now, we've said this several times that when you look in Jewish theology at this time in world history, they had different perspectives of what the Messiah looked like. I get it. When you look at the Old Testament, in one place he's presented as the the uh, lamb going to the slaughter. And another place, he's presenting as a, presented as a mighty warrior. Then he's presented as a king. Then he's presented as a priest. Well, the king and the priest couldn't be the same person under the Mosaic law. The king had to come from the tribe of Judah, and the priest had to come from the tribe of Levi or Aaron. So they couldn't be the same person. So they had this perspective of different messiahs. And so they had not conceived of the messiah as one person. That's the mystery that's revealed in the New Testament in Christ. So, in fact, it was one person. No wonder they were confused. But what they did believe that was Jesus was a Messiah. Uh, He was a special person. And uh, they may even have, some of them by this time, gotten the picture that he was God because they worshipped him. But not all of them did. Uh, Thomas himself said, I won't believe until I see the the nail prints, holes in his his hands. Then maybe I'll believe. And then he worships him. And so it was a confusing time. It's not till later on when these New Testament authors began to look back, they began to see that the Messiah was one person. 
author of Hebrews argues that. So in in order for Jesus to be both the king and the priest, it required a new covenant because he couldn't be both under the old covenant. That's why he's tied back to Melchizedek in Hebrews, not to Aaron. And so it's necessary for him to introduce a new covenant. And that's what we have here. And so they're, they're confused, but what they do know is that the one person they had placed their hopes in is now pouring out his life on the cross. That's what they know. And this is a, had to be one of the darkest times of their life because both were very special to Jesus and both of them, for both of them, Jesus was a very special person and they're watching it happen. They did not understand the theological significance of what this execution meant. Not yet. That would come later. Their, their movement to a much fuller faith and what they document now, what we believe to be true, that movement to that faith came as a result of his death. And honestly, his resurrection. Because after his death, they all scattered. Then all of a sudden, here he is, standing in their midst. So can you imagine going from the darkest time of your life to the most surprising, confusing, exciting times of your life because he's now alive? And you'd never seen that before. This is the setting for the two of them standing at the base, the foot of the cross, watching this play out. So now, we'll look at the passage in just a minute. But Jesus gave an inkling of what was coming in John chapter 13. This is a passage where he washes the disciples' feet. In John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover festival, so it's the night before he is crucified. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this is John speaking. This is an editorial comment. This isn't Jesus speaking. This is John reflecting back and recognizing how special that night was. He didn't see it that night. That's not until after the resurrection and after Pentecost 50 days later. And looking backward now, he adds this language. Having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. So this gives us quite a bit of insight into what's about to happen in this passage here. Jesus' final act was to care for and love these two very special people. And the end of his life creates a new beginning. Something brand new happens right here with these two people. We now know that a man being crucified could make his last will and testament even from the cross. He had plenty of witnesses. (laughs) So he could declare what he wanted to have happen, or he could change his will right there on the cross. So the oldest brother, if the father was gone, and Joseph's no longer in the picture, we don't know why, we just know he's no longer in the picture, the oldest brother was responsible for the mother. Well, the oldest brother's pouring out his life. He has to do something to take care of the mother. So the tradition was to pass it on to the younger brothers, but he doesn't do that. He passes it on to one of his disciples, the beloved disciple whom he loved. This probably, I believe, reflects the disbelief of his brothers. In John chapter 7, his brothers did not believe him. That didn't come until after the resurrection. His mother did, but not his brothers. 
So he's not about to pass her off to disbelieving siblings, if you will. Later on, James becomes a very prominent figure. He's, a, he's the brother of Christ. And so his brothers all believed afterwards, and they took on vital roles in the early church. But it wasn't until after the resurrection. So in, against tradition, he hands her off to a disciple, not to one of his brothers. So with this statement that Jesus uh, is handing her off to John, Jesus reveals that relationships that we find in a healthy, believing community are stronger, or they should be, than what we find in natural families. And I've talked to several of you enough over the years to know that some of you have gone through that. When Nancy and I became missionaries, uh, our families weren't so keen on recognizing that. Some of our family members never did recognize it. It's a shame to go beg for money. (laughs) It's not what you do. You go get a job and work. And so some of our family members never actually acknowledged that we were missionaries for several years. And, um, and there's, a, there's schisms that can occur in families because of you, someone following Christ and being faithful. I see several of you shaking your heads. You know what I'm talking about. So with this action right here, handing her off not to the natural brothers, the family, but to a disciple, he's teaching us that these relationships should be stronger the natural family. And sometimes we have to go against our family. So it kind of gives light to Jesus' statement, I didn't come to unite families, I came to divide families. Because in order to believe, sometimes you have to divide. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. So what he does for the first time is he creates a new family or a new community, the children of God, what God envisioned all along. You see, when you go all the way back to the garden, God's greatest gift to humanity was to give them freedom of choice. That was showing dignity. He made us in his image, and he said, you get to choose. It's your choice. And what did we choose? Rebellion. We rejected him. That's what we did. Okay, the very next thing he did was the curse. Can you imagine what life would be like if the curse had not occurred? Can you imagine that? Life was just fat, dumb, and happy. We would have no need for him. You see, the curse is actually an act of, it's, an, it's a blessing. It's an act of grace. Because it's in our frailty, in our struggles, in our suffering, where we turn to Christ. See, what struggling does, what suffering does, what all these challenges do, is they put us in a position to either shake our fist at God in anger or to turn to him with questions. I've seen both many, 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 many times in my life. And so it was an act of grace. The curse was actually an act of grace because it's in our frailty where we often seek him. In any mission activity around the world, it's almost always the poor who turn first to Christ. Those who are struggling the greatest. Um, And that's a good thing to remember, that the curse actually plays a vital role. We get to capture a glimpse of that when they're removed from the garden. And he places angels, says you can't get back in. Otherwise, you might eat from the tree of life and be in this perpetual state forever. So it's an act of grace. That's what he did. So what he's doing here now is that through his own suffering, he is living out what we've been taught, suffering 
It's not a bad thing. Okay, these seven words hanging on the cross as he gets weaker and weaker are all about his mission. The last thing he says is, it is finished. I did it. I fulfilled my mission. It's over. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It's done. So he has now created a community. So now go back to Leviticus 13 and 14. They're outside the camp. They're outside the community because they've been defiled or they're sick or whatever. In order to come back into community, they have to offer two sacrifices. One to get into community to experience that joy and the other one to go into the tabernacle and restore the relationship with God the Father. Jesus does that all wrapped up in the one sacrifice of his life. So he creates a community right here that he then enters into. His mother's now cared for. His mother and the beloved disciples form a new family. In verse 27, he says, From that time on, this disciple took him into his house. This could be translated because of this hour. In other words, at the time of the execution, so when Jesus says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, a whole plethora of other things are going to happen. Today, your sin will be atoned for. Today, you will be forgiven. Today, a new community is being formed. And it starts with these two people right here. They're the first. They're the prototype of what's coming in the church. Two people who love him faithfully. And um, that gives us a glimpse of what's about to happen 50 days later at Pentecost when the Spirit comes. And the Leviticus, we said, is a blueprint. It's a piece of paper with a bunch of symbols on it. And at Pentecost, 50 days later, that blueprint takes shape and becomes a living house. Paul calls it a living house, a spiritual house. Peter calls it a, a temple, a spiritual temple. That's us right here. And it all starts with these two people. They're the first, if you will. All the way through John, he talks about the gathering. He's going to gather his people from both Jews and Gentiles. It's all the way through John. And now we see it for the first time. Two people. He puts them together in a new form of a family, a spiritual family. So the situation described in the prologue, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. Okay? That's the same Greek word as here. From that time on, the disciple took her into his own. She became his. And so we see a reversal of what happened to Jesus. He went to his own people and they rejected him. And now we see it being reversed. Because John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the disciple John takes his mother into his own from then on and takes care of her. That's a picture of what church should be like. If you're in sin, we'll come running. It's not always a pleasant conversation, I get that. <clears throat> but if you want to live your life that way, you're not going to end up where you want. Life is going to be unhappy. I never met an alcoholic that started out wanting to be an alcoholic. Never met a divorced person that started out wanting to be divorced. 
Never met a drug addict that started out wanting to be a drug addict. No, you never end up where you want. And so when you get into trouble, then we come running to help you. We take you as our own. When you get into financial trouble, we run to help you. We take you as our own. Whatever trouble you're in, that's what a healthy community looks like. And that starts right here at the foot of the cross with two people. Fifty days later, it spreads to the whole community of faith. And we all get the chance to experience it. This was repeated all throughout the book of Acts. Acts 2, they sold everything so that they could take care of all of the Jewish visitors. Remember, we had a million visitors from around the country, (coughs) around the world, (coughs) coming for, for Pentecost, all these Jewish people living in Jerusalem. And so the people that lived there sold what they had to take care of them. Your brothers and sisters, this is healthy community. They need help. I'm going to sell what I have to help. That's why I suggested a couple different times. When you uh, look at sacrifice for Lent, especially those of you that come from high church backgrounds, don't give up something. Don't do that. Sacrifice something on behalf of someone else. That's the biblical concept of sacrifice. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing at this moment in history. When he could be focused on his own pain and torture, he's focused instead on mission, the sacrifice for all of us. So look around and find somebody that, that needs help in some way that you can bless them and then go bless them. That's sacrifice. And then watch the joy flow. Because it does. It really does. So this new community all the way through Acts, they now care for one another. And when you move out into the epistles, you see this language being taught over and over and over again by Peter and Paul, Jude, caring for one another. And it all starts right here at the foot of the cross with two people. That's where it starts. So one of his final acts was to care for those he loves. When he could have been focused on the pain and the torture, the embarrassment and the shame, that's what Paul, that's what uh, author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, let us go outside the camp with him to bear the disgrace that he bore for us. And you know what? Being a Christian in this world is becoming more and more disgraceful, isn't it? More and more. As more of our country turns against Christianity, we're starting to stand out. I said 10 years ago, that uh, some my students used to complain that you can't tell a Christian from a non-Christian. That's a good thing. That means we've done our job. We live by the same values. Those values are now shifting, and we're beginning to stand out more and more. That's what it means. So we get the opportunity to go outside the camp with him and bear the disgrace that he bore. And the way we do that is by not worrying about what the world thinks. Don't care what the world thinks. Don't. Let them shame you. It's okay. They don't know what you know. Don't be afraid to mention Jesus. They don't know who he is. They only know a stereotype, but they don't know him like you do. So don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. Don't be ashamed to love others. Don't be ashamed as a church for us to show that kind of rich love toward one another because that's exactly what Jesus did. While they're all mocking him, Father, forgive them. And woman, here's your son. And he took her in to his own. 
That's a picture, an early picture, the first picture of what the church looks like, what happens at Pentecost. So when you think of Christ, how do you think of him? I've asked this question so many, many times in bars and coffee shops, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. When you think of God, do you think of someone who's up there like this? Just waiting for you to trip up. Or do you think of a God who cares about every single human on the planet and created you for joy and wants you to experience that? If you think that way, then you know what? Sin becomes an act of grace. The declaration of sin. If God had never told us that alcoholism was sinful, (coughs) we would have had to find out the hard way. And some of us have to find out the hard way. But by telling us that, we can avoid that. That's what makes it an act of grace. To not tell us is an act of abuse. You see, God isn't up there like this. He's up there going, oh, oh, Bruce, don't do that. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Now we got to help him. Right? Ryan, don't do that. Or Jim, don't do that. I could just picture the conversations with the father and the son. Watch Howard. He's going to need our help in about three minutes. You know, one of the ways we express our lack of faith, it's really bad theology. Life is good. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's really, really bad theology. You see, here's the way it actually works. When God, he gives you space to rest. And when he thinks your faith is ready to get stretched and tested, along comes a challenge. And so the proper way to think about this is, ah, God's giving me time to rest right now. I can bless others. And then a challenge comes onto the horizon. The other shoe didn't drop. That's God saying, your faith is now ready to go another, another step. And so what should happen is when you see a challenge coming your way, you should say, all right, I'm in. Where are we going, God? And then you should pray that he would give you the wisdom to know what to do. Because challenges are there and suffering is there on purpose. Suffering is the one language we share with the world. They all understand it. What they don't understand is how you respond the way you do. So if you really think theologically, then when suffering comes your way and challenge, you're going to say, God just decided I'm ready to grow my faith. I'm in. And then you become that light on a dark hill for the people around you. So how do you think of God? Jesus at the greatest moment of pain, torture, extreme torture, is thinking about everybody there. Forgive all those people who are mocking me. Today, you're going to be with me. Woman, here's your son. He loved them to the very end. He really did. Father, thank you for your grace. We don't even have any way to repay you except to say thank you and to live lives that bring honor to your name. On behalf of my church, thank you for another day of life. Help us, Lord, today to bring honor to your name with our lives and to help and help us to bear the disgrace that Jesus bore on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.
For those of you watching online, thanks so much for joining us. This concludes the live streaming portion of our service.